Supernatural in Central Florida. It's the History Goes Bump podcast. So, Merry Christmas Eve, everybody. Well, we want to welcome everybody to our live stream, even though it's not streaming very well. We are upkeeping the tradition of telling ghost stories on Christmas Eve around the fire. If you tip that down a little bit, Denise, maybe they can see the fire sitting here. I know on the audio, you can probably hear it cracking in the background. So what we have here are submissions to our flash fiction contest that we did for our anniversary show. These are the ones that weren't in the uh, winners category, but they still were really good. And so we wanted to share those with everybody. And so we thought we would carry those over to the Christmas Eve episode and do that. So our first submission we have here is from Katrina Ray Solace, and it's entitled Tomorrow's Queen. The cracked paintings of former queens were foreboding around the walls of the Great Hall. Centuries of women who had run the country, many for longer than she had been alive. The wars, the famine, the disease, they'd all braved and fought and vanquished, weighed heavily in their confident gazes. Fear choked her throat. She hadn't even been raised to do this. She could never be these women. A war she didn't believe in was being waged in a country she couldn't always find on a map. Soldiers were scattered to nearly every corner of the world. She'd seen their photos. She'd seen their photos. These old queens wouldn't have known their soldiers. They lived in a different time, a different world. Not this world that seemed to be both growing and shrinking simultaneously with each bit of new technology. But they had battled plagues, and so had she, the lone survivor of the royal class. She took a deep breath and did her best to mimic their faces, to wear their mask of conceit and pride. She looked at the crown in its glass box and shivered. She was tomorrow's queen. Each pin from her hair tinked, tinked, tinked into the small silver dish on her table. She felt the woman's hands in her hair, not actually sure what her name was. She looked up in the mirror and the woman smiled. As she looked away, though, she did a second glance. Do I know you? No, ma'am. You seem familiar. The woman smiled but didn't answer. She just kept pulling pins. Tink, tink, tink. Tomorrow's queen didn't even have to pull back her bed covers. Someone else did that too. You're sure I don't know you? No, ma'am. Tomorrow's queen woke in the night. She didn't know at first why she had awoken, and then she remembered the cracked faces of the queens. She crept slowly from her bed looking for the maid. She fumbled for her cell phone turning on its built-in flashlight as she made her way down the cold castle hallway toward the faces, the faces of the queens. And there she was in the painting, her skin faded and cracked, with one of tomorrow's queen's hairs, with one of tomorrow's queen's hairpins in her right hand. Do I know you? tomorrow's queen asked. The response seemed to whisper through the air and sound inside her head at the same time. You are me, you are all of us, and we are all, and we all, and we are all of you. 
but I'm not. I'm just me. Tomorrow you become queen. Tomorrow you become us, and we become you. You will never be alone again. Tomorrow's queen ran back to her room and slammed the door behind her, but when she turned there was the woman, the hairpin woman, and the voice again around her and inside her. You are us, and we are you. You are us, and we are you. The woman stepped closer to tomorrow's queen. Memories flooded her, her childhood outside of castles. She wasn't supposed to be queen. Years planning to be a teacher. She'd even started college, but then the illness had come. Everyone had died, and she was the closest thing to royalty. She was the only one left in a world gaping with holes, gaping with missing people. All she had seen, all she had survived. You are us, and we are you. You are us, and we are you. All at once she knew this as a test, but she wasn't sure she could pass it. You are us, and we are you. You are us, and we are you. She took one deep breath. Her voice strangled the words, but after a moment she spit them out. I am not afraid. You are us, and we are you. You are us, and we are you. I am not afraid. Her cell phone battery bleeped and went dark. Yesterday's queen disappeared in the darkness. The hairpin tinked to the floor. You are tomorrow's queen, echoed around her. I don't know. Did she disappear into the painting, Denise? I don't know. Faded and cracked. Let's see. Who all do we have in here? We've got who? Oh, cool. We've got uh, Jenna, Heather. Are you the only two that are over here on uh, YouTube? I know Aaron was here earlier. Did you want to read the next story you want me to? This is Emily Reidner, Mr. Black. I wasn't raised in a normal house. Before I was born, my parents bought an old house and converted it into a nursing home with an apartment on the top floor for us. For as long as I can remember, I've gone from room to room, visiting with the residents and spending all my time hearing stories from their youth. But of all the people I've come to know as family, Mr. Black is my favorite. One of my favorite parts of the day was when I got home from school, and after having a quick snack, I would go to Mr. Black's room to either read to him or hear stories from the Western Front. Today I skipped my snack, too excited to bring Mr. Black my new Hardy Boys book, and ran from the third floor apartment to Mr. Black's second floor private room. I passed Daddy who was painting the hallway white, and he scolded me to calm yourself. With an apology over my shoulder, I began to the last door at the end of the hallway. I opened Mr. Black's door after my customary quick two knocks to find him. Gone. His bed and side table gone. The closet empty. It was as if he had never been here. I know I knew better. Mr. Black was near 90. He must have passed away sometime after I'd left for school this morning. I backed out of his room and walked days back to Daddy, who kept painting as if nothing was who kept painting as if nothing was wrong. I stared for a moment at his brush covered, the obnoxious blue that I hated. Finally, I said, Daddy, where is Mr. Black? Daddy jumped slightly, clearly broken out of his painting spell, and gave a small sigh. Honey, Mr. Black had to go away. I know he died, Daddy, but how? I tried, I asked trying to emulate, oh. I asked, trying to emanate the same stern look Mama would have given me when I told her my hair didn't need to be brushed because Mrs. Ruth had already done it. He simply shrugged and started painting again. He didn't wake up, sweetheart. At his age, that's not shocking. 
I wasn't satisfied with his answer, but what else could he tell me? I slowly trudged up the stairs to our apartment and went to my room, suddenly too tired to deal with how empty the nursing home suddenly felt. Daddy woke me for dinner, and I reluctantly joined my parents at the table. Is something wrong, Audrey? Mama asked, and Daddy immediately cast her a look, begging her not to open this can of worms. Mr. Black died, I replied. Mama's eyes immediately went to the ceiling and her fork clattered to the plate. Daddy took a gulp of his drink, probably wispy, <laughs> wispy, probably whiskey, and cleared his throat awkwardly. I am calling the doctor in the morning, David, she said and stood from the table, walked out of the dining room, and in a few seconds I heard the door slam shut. I looked to Daddy. What does she mean, Daddy? He looked at me, a sad smile on his kind face. Nothing, Angel. Go say goodnight to everyone and go to bed. I'll take care of the dishes. I followed Daddy's orders, said goodnight to the other residents, and made my way to bed. On my nightstand sat the new Hardy Boys book I had planned to read to Mr. Black. It now held no appeal, and before succumbing to sleep, I decided to immediately return it to the library in the morning. When I woke the following morning, I was met with my parents and a man I had never seen before at the dining room table, waiting for me. Please sit down, Audrey, Mama said. The strange man smiled reassuringly at me, and I sat across from him, curious as to who he was. Hello, Audrey, he began, his voice soothing. How are you today? Fine, I replied, sitting up straight, like how I was taught. That's wonderful. Have you seen your friends today, he asked, and I became confused. No, I said, and then looked at my parents. Mama was white-knuckling her coffee mug, and Daddy looked guilty. Do you only see them downstairs, the stranger asked me, and I was startled. My friends, my parents would allow, my parents would never allow more than one nine-year-old to wander this house with residents. Of course not, only at school, I clarified, so he wouldn't ask another ridiculous question. He gave a short, reassuring laugh. No, Audrey, I mean the old people, the ones you read to. Oh, I said, I haven't been down yet, but I'm sure they're fine, still reeling from Mr. Black's sudden death but I'll read to all of them and make it better. The stranger's smile turned sympathetic. That's very kind of you to make them feel better, but I think I have some people at my hospital that could use a good reading. Would you like to read to them? They could use cheering up. Okay, but I have to do my chores first, I told him, and my daddy laughed sadly and shook his head. Honey, your chores are done, and we packed a bag for you. You'll be reading to the patients for a while, he said, a single tear rolling down his face. Go ahead and say goodbye to everyone. Go ahead and say goodbye to everyone, Audrey, and I'll let your parents know when to expect you home. The stranger told me, and for some reason, I felt I should not only leave the room, but the nursing home altogether. As I walked to the apartment door, the last thing I heard was the stranger tell my parents, It's likely delusions, Mr. and Mrs. Callahan. Children naturally have active imaginations, but I believe you were right to call us. My advice, though, would be to finish the restorations quickly, have the priest come and bless the whole house, and tell no potential buyer this home was a place for the elderly. And, Mr. Callahan, for God's sake, if you have another child, don't play along with their delusions to appease them. Now, that was an interesting story, but what's even more interesting is they're trying to act like this little girl is hallucinating these old people, I guess. But then he tells them to have a priest come by the house and, you know, just bless it just in case. If they're delusions, why would you need to bless the house? 
So he must be thinking there really are ghosts there. And then what good is it going to do to take her to a hospital because you think she's having mental issues? She's really seeing ghosts. (laughs) Thank you, Emily, for writing that one. I've seen some people posting stuff over on Facebook if you want to go check that out. All right, this one doesn't have a title, but it's by Paige Strong. Once upon a time in these very woods, a girl got lost. Her friends had dared her to walk into the woods alone. They called her a scaredy cat. Sure, she wouldn't do it. She wouldn't back down from a dare, though, so she took her phone and started walking away from the campfire. Kind of like the one we have here that's smoking. It was a clear night, but no moon. The trees cast black blankets over some of the stars, while other stars watched unhindered. The firelight reached into the trees like fingers raking against the darkness. She took one step, then another, and another, grasping her phone like a lifeline. The firelight dimmed around her feet. A nighttime creature shrieked from the darkness, and she whirled back to face the distant fire. See, scaredy cat is coming back, someone jeered. She can't do it. Angrily, she dug her heels into the fallen pine needles and turned her back to the safety of the fire. Five more steps, and she couldn't see the firelight. Just a few more steps, just to say she had done it, and she'd go back. Pacing forward cautiously, she stubbed her foot on a root. She switched on her phone light and saw the top of her toe skinned and bleeding through the flip-flop. Time to go back. Turning back towards where she thought the campfire was, she shone her phone light towards where she wanted to go. Sure she knew her way, she turned the light off. She didn't want the other girls to think she'd cheated, even though no one had said she couldn't use a flashlight. She started walking in the dark. She was sure she hadn't gone quite this far from camp. Checking her phone, she saw it had been at least ten minutes since she had stubbed her toe. Her toe was throbbing. Her heart was hammering. She was caught between terrified and annoyed. She really didn't like this game anymore. If they teased her, they teased her. She no longer cared. She called out, softly at first, not wanting to wake other campers. Then louder and louder and even louder until she was screaming. There was never a response. She gave up. Crying, she looked at her phone. She'd been more than 30 minutes now. Someone had to have missed her by now. She turned it off again, then froze. Her phone. She turned it back on again, found the group text the girls had been using, and began to type. I took a breath before finishing the story. The next morning, they found all that was left of her miles and miles from her camp. They found her phone from her texts for help they'd never received, and one bloody flip-flop, I finished, dramatically, causing my campers to shudder appreciatively. They were all gripping their own phones like useless safety blankets. There was no signal way out here, which was half the reason I took them so far into the woods. All right, time for bed. They jumped and scurried to our tent, not wanting to be the last to douse the fire. I chuckled, grabbing the gallon of water I'd kept nearby for the purpose, and smothered the remaining coals and embers before snuggling into my own sleeping bag between the four girls. I'd almost fallen asleep when a light popped on somewhere in the tent near me. Jan, sleep, no phone, I muttered. I didn't turn it on, she whispered. That woke me up completely. Her voice was hushed and earnest. I sat up to see her staring at the phone's brilliant flashlight. Well, that's okay. It happens sometimes, I lied. I'd never heard of a phone's flashlight turning on by itself. Turn it all the way off and let's get some sleep. I paused seeing Elle's terrified eyes peering over Jan's shoulder. In fact, let's all turn our phones all the way off. It'll save our batteries. We all quickly followed my advice and settled down again. Then Jan's phone screen lit the tent. I didn't do it, she shrieked. 
I knew she hadn't. She'd put the phone at her feet this time. Elle's phone blinked on, then Margaret's, then mine, and Mel's. On, off, on, off, on, off. We were too frozen to scream. I finally picked up my phone. Guys, this isn't funny, it read. Guys, I'm lost. Help me. Why won't you answer me? Help me. I'm lost. Help me. 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 Wow. That was, uh, that'll teach you to go hiking in the woods by yourself on a challenge. I'm going to, I'm going to drink some water. I think the smoke's getting to me. So Tammy says, messy Christmas Eve, just got back from a family gathering. So I'm not sure if it's Merry Christmas Eve or messy, but either way, welcome Tammy. Hi, Jennifer. Glad to have you here. Okay, so Tara says Facebook's working. Elizabeth liked the puppy sounds. Um, don't encourage her, please. <laughs> her okay. cat was wondering about it so your cat could hear Tiana barking. Yes, so Elizabeth and Tara both liked the puppy sounds. Again, please don't encourage her. <laughs> this one is called Dorothy by Leslie Pollock. Nanny, Nanny, Dorothy called again. Where was Nanny? She said she would go find her. Nanny always said if they got separated that she was to wait in one spot, not go running around, and that staying in one spot would make it easier for Nanny to find her. How long had she waited? She was sure she had to have missed dinner, but she wasn't hungry, though Mommy had to be worrying about her. Mommy was the one who was supposed to have come with her today, but Mommy was having a bad lady pains, so she sent Nanny in her place. Did all grown-up ladies have lady pains? Nanny was happy to go in Mommy's place, okay, Diane, to see the matinee at the new Iroquois Theater. Mr. Bluebird was the show. It was so popular that the theater was full of people, more than there were seats. Standing room only, Nanny called it. Many of Dorothy's friends were there. She had waved to her friends, Sarah and Esther, up in the balcony. She saw that Michael had a seat up front and knew he was sure to brag about that later. The show was fun until the trouble started. During a moonlight scene, sparks came from the light fixture and caught the scenery on fire. At first, everything was fine. A man from the show told them so. Nanny even reassured her that everything was under control and they would drop down a special curtain. She said it was made of stuff that would keep the fire from the audience. But it didn't come down and it caught fire too. Everyone started to run. So many people trying to get out. Nanny tried to hold her hand, but in the crush, her hand slipped out of Nanny's. There was a lot of screaming and yelling. The noise was deafening. Dorothy was getting very scared. She couldn't see. The smoke was so thick. Her lungs burned, and the people were squeezing her. The weight of the bodies pushed her down. She must have fainted. Next thing she knew, she was alone. She waited like Nanny said. At times, she called out for her, but it did no good. It was odd that the theater showed no damage. Nothing burned. All in all, it looked odd compared to how things were when she and Nanny got here for the show. Almost like it was a different theater. People walked past her but never talked to her. She tried to ask for help at times, even though Nanny and Mommy had both told her not to talk to strangers. But the strangers, for the most part, ignored her. In one case, she asked a gentleman about Nanny, but he just looked around with his brow all wrinkled up calling out for Annie. It was confusing. <laughs> she got even stranger response when she touched his hand. He pulled it up and looked at it. Annie, are you there? He called again. 
Who was Annie? Nanny's name was Mary. Another time there was a group of people carrying around a bunch of gizmos that made odd noises. They didn't seem to hear her either, but they did jump when she tugged at their coats. They responded more to her whining boxes than to her questions. There was a woman in that group who kept going on about how she sensed this and sensed that. Talked on and on about this person being here or that person being there. Dorothy looked around but didn't see these people the woman was talking about. Could they have been ghosts? She always wanted to see a ghost, but none showed up. Also, the lady didn't look like the medium she had seen in the newspaper. Nanny said it was fakery and trickery. Miss Calfast next door said that it was demons that they talked to, that good faithful people went to heaven, others became demons. Dorothy was unsure what was true. She would have she would have to talk to Mommy about it or Daddy. Daddy knows lots of things. After looking over their doodads, Dorothy sat back down in her seat, kicking her feet back and forth. Nanny, she was sure, would find her soon, and they would go home. Maybe Mommy was feeling better now. A glow started near the stage. Dorothy's curiosity got the better of her, and she jumped out of her seat, which made a thunking sound as it swung back up. She made her way down the aisle towards the glow, pausing for a moment. What if the fire was coming back? But she felt no heat. From the glow, a figure was, from the glow, a figure slowly emerged. Dorothy, are you here? Nanny, Dorothy cried, and she ran toward her. She's here, Nanny, Nanny called back behind her. Soon, two other figures also came through the light. Mommy, Daddy, I waited. I'm so glad you found me. Dorothy was entwined in her parents' arms, and she felt Nanny's hand also on her shoulder. You are always a good girl, her mother told her. Are we going home now, Dorothy asked. No, someplace better. You'll see, her mother answered. How is it better than home, Dorothy inquired. Her mother smiled. Patience, my little one. She took Dorothy's hand, then her father's hand, and together they walked back towards the light. Nanny followed close behind. Why did you take so long to find me, Dorothy asked. Her mother looked at her with sad eyes. We thought you were with Nanny, and she thought you were with us. Dorothy cocked her head to the side as she took in what her mother had said. It wasn't until we joined Nanny that we found you were not there. Nanny thought you still might be here, so we came to find you. Because I'm a good girl, Dorothy said, and she held her mother's hand and skipped along beside her. Ron was bored going through the video that they took at the Oriental Theater, built on the site of the infamous Uruquois. This is the worst part of the paranormal research, hoping to find something, anything, to make them not look like crackpots. With a large smile, he called out, Carrie, Brian, get in here. The others rushed into the room. What is it, Ron? Did you find something? Carrie asked in great excitement. Brian walked into the room with less excitement. This is a not, not another one of your orbs, is it? Ron turned to the monitor so Carrie and Brian could get a better view. Then with his finger, he made a circle on the screen. Watch this area. In the rows of theater seats, they watched as one seat moved down from its folded position. Now watch. Ron fast-forwarded the video a couple of minutes so they could see the seat flip back up. It has to be Annie, Carrie smiled at Ron, patting him on the shoulder. Looks like you got her. Probably a faulty seat, Brian's skeptical voice broke in. We'll have to check it out. That was cool. That was very cool, and it's actually historic, you know, historical because the Iroquois Theater did burn down, and a lot of kids, and especially their moms, were burned down with that theater burning. So that was very interesting. 
I did. It, apparently, Tammy, uh, she said it, it pretty much was a, a messy Christmas. She meant to type Mary, but there was wrapping paper and boxes everywhere. So messy fits the bill. Who do we got over here on YouTube? We're back with Jenna. Jenny. Hi, Jenny. And Mrs. Hopkins. Merry Christmas. You guys are having a bonfire too? That's very cool. Uh, this is as big as our bonfire's getting. <laughs> it was big earlier. Well, it, it, you're, and you're doing a good job. All right. This one's by Lindsay Otto, and it is not titled either. Despite the sunshine streaming through the wrought iron fence and between the tall tombs, the hairs on the back of my neck were standing up. As soon as we walked through the intricate gate labeled St. Louis Cemetery Number 1, the air, normally a warm 98 degrees and up this time of the year, dropped significantly. Although a welcome break, I couldn't help but look forward to the next stop on our tour. Isn't it beautiful, Angie? I looked at Harry skeptically. Look, wouldn't you want to be buried in something so magnificent? I don't know. It just feels creepy. I knew what he was seeing, the tall whitewashed tombs in stark contrast with the colorful flowers laid around them and the ornate sculptures topping some of the tombs. In the back of my mind, though, I felt something that wasn't beautiful. If you come this way, we have the voodoo priestess Madame Laveau's final resting place. She famously practiced voodoo here in New Orleans and became known as the Queen of Voodoo. Some say they've seen her in the years after her death continuing her practice. Bobby, our tour guide, continued with stories of Madame Laveau. It was... I was in no hurry to get closer to this particular tomb, but Harry grabbed my wrist and pulled us closer. A tomb about e- a tomb about eight feet tall and pure white stood in front of me. The white was only marred by the large amount of bright red X's painted on the exterior. Flowers and different trinkets link- littered the bottom. I could see a plaque with the priestess's name on it along with her story. What are the X's for? I don't see them on any other tomb, someone from the group asked. Those are from the vandals that come asking for a spell from Madame Laveau, Bobby answered. If you'd like to wander around a little, we have five minutes to explore. Thank goodness I'm going to look near the gate, I told Harry. He was taking pictures of every inch of the tomb and circling it like he was performing a ritual. He didn't answer, but he made eye contact briefly, which I took as an acknowledgement. As the rest of the group wandered off among the tombs, I headed straight to the gate. Safely on the sidewalk, looking into the graveyard, it was a beautiful area. If you didn't think about all the dead bodies inside, the mausoleum seemed regal as if everyone buried here was a king or queen. Even the ordinary people got to rest in magnificent stone palaces, much better than six feet under the ground. Slowly, everyone started to join me at the opening. Are you okay? <laughs> Tiana tried to jump up in a chair and it didn't work out as well as she thought it was going to. Even the ordinary people got to rest in a magnificent stone palace, much better than six feet under the ground. Slowly, everyone started to join me at the opening. Some were already looking back at pictures to see if they caught a ghost. Hopefully, Harry would at least wait until we got to the hotel, which is supposedly also haunted, I thought with dread. All right, is everyone here? Bobby's voice came from the back of the crowd. He began coming forward through everyone, and I noticed Harry wasn't there. Wait, my boyfriend's not back yet. I haven't seen him since we were at the voodoo grave. Hmm, I don't think I've seen him either. Let's wait a minute or two and see if he makes his way here. Probably just caught up taking pictures, Bobby suggested. I stood on my tiptoes to see if I could glimpse Harry between the looming tombs and mausoleums. 
My heartbeat was quickening faster than I thought was healthy with each passing second. I don't know. It seems awfully still and quiet, like no one's there. I'm going to go look for him. I didn't even look back to make sure the group would wait for me. As I walked back through the maze of white looming structures, I couldn't decide which way to go next. Each one looked the same, an angel, a soldier, a stag. None resembled the one where I'd left Harry. Panic set in and I started running down aisles, turning at random, searching for a sign of the red paint or dozens of flowers. Harry, where are you? My voice echoed, then died. Turning another corner, I stopped abruptly, barely missing a figure kneeling on the ground. He sat by the foot of the voodoo queen's grave, his head in his hands. I thought I heard the faint sound of sobs, but he wasn't moving. I, is that you, Harry? It could be Harry, but I've never seen him look like this before. Slowly the man turned towards me. Slowly I stepped towards him. Grace? Harry's voice croaked. It was him. I didn't care about the scared look in his eyes or how white his face looked. Before I knew it, my arms were around his neck and I was in his lap. You scared me. I thought something happened to you. Why didn't you answer me? I'm sorry. I I just forgot. Is everyone waiting for me? Yes, they're all waiting at the entrance. His face looked closer to normal this time. I stood up and offered my hand to help him up. Let's get out of here. Together we walked back to the group. They had scattered a bit again, some down the street, others taking more pictures of the creepy mausoleums. Oh, good, you found him, Bobby exclaimed. Now, are you guys ready to move on? Yes, we're ready, I said, glancing at Harry, who was looking over his shoulder to where we just come from. Back in our hotel room, I got out of the shower and went to the bed where Harry was taking a nap. I figured he wouldn't mind being woken up, though, not after he knew what I had not after he knew what I had in mind. I carefully climbed into the bed and close behind him. He was on his side, his back to me, so I reached over and gently rolled Harry over. Ah! I yelped and pulled back, startled. Harry's eyes were open, staring at nothing. His chest rose and fell in a steady motion, so I knew he was alive. Harry, what's wrong? I moved close again. He turned to look at me, but he wouldn't meet my eyes. Nothing. I'm fine, he said, sitting up and grabbing my hand. Something wasn't right, though. Gently, I brought my hands to cup his cheeks and turned Harry's face so I could see his eyes. Harry, you know you can tell me. Suddenly, his face contorted into an expression of pain, and I loosened my grip. His eyes were locked on mine, staring into my soul, it seemed, and he continued to look horrified. Then a tear leaked from his eye and fell down his face until my thumb felt wet. A tall red brick wall surrounded the mansion-like building. Oak trees dripping in moss towered over the entire property some with limbs reaching over the wall where tourists and residents drove down the busy little street. Inside, one resident sat by his window, watching the people from afar. His room was on the top floor, so he could see over the wall in some small spots between the huge oak branches. Normally, his eyes were hidden behind a black cloth. Today, though, he needed to see. Every now and then, he needed to see. At the same time, a young new orderly needed to see this man's eyes. He'd heard stories from his co-workers, but he didn't believe them. Earlier, he'd encouraged the patient to look out the window today as it was a beautiful day, and luckily it had worked. Harry, the orderly said loudly as he stood closer to the patient's chair. Instinctively, Harry turned around to see who had called him. As their eyes met, images clouded Harry's vision. The young orderly, now middle-aged, sat alone in a room calling for help. He grabbed at his throat and fell to the floor, retching, then calling again. Nobody came. In his final moments, the orderly's body twitched before falling still, lying on the floor clutching his throat. Sir, are you all right? Let go of me so I can go get the doctor. 
Harry could see the young orderly in front of him again, but he still felt the fear and pain of the older man's death. So it sounds to me like, because Harry was paying a little bit too much attention to the voodoo queen's grave, he got some kind of bizarre power to see into the future people's deaths. That would be horrible. That would be very, very scary. Yes? A couple people joined us over on the Facebook Live while you were reading, so say hi to Robert and Matthew. Hey, Robert, Matthew. And over here, Tyra says, I'm very jealous of the fire pit. <laughs> and here we are in Florida where we actually don't really need it tonight, but it's chilly. It, it is a little chilly, but I think most of you would be laughing at us with our idea of what's chilly. <laughs> All right. We have the staring contest by Stephen Pappas. You know, I, um, need to get a drink of water here, Denise. And I looked down to grab my glass and somebody's head was in my glass. <laughs> it wasn't you. Tiana tends to help herself to our beverages. She's drinking out of my glass now. And then you can have some, Denise. That'll be yummy. All right. Is that enough? Okay, here. You can have the water now, Denise. Okay, so this is The Staring Contest by Stephen Pappas. You can put it over there by you. One step, two step, three step, snap, whoosh. Just a moment before he'd been walking down the road. The night was warm and the midsummer humidity added a heaviness to the air that he could almost drown in. Were he to inhale too deeply, a night stroll through the campground was all that was supposed to have been. The boy had walked down the street past the old barn and had come to the fence that ran along the horse pasture. Just for a moment he had stopped. He'd listened to the crickets, felt the warm breeze breaking through the muggy southern air and taken in the night. Then he'd begun his walk once more. One step, two steps, three steps, snap, whoosh. Those five sounds had been all it had taken. Everything was different now. As he felt the gust of air fly past his face, he caught movement out of the corner of his eye. The boy's head jerked toward the motion, and sound had come from instinctively following whatever had caught his attention, like some timid animal watching for a prospective predator. He saw nothing, save for a triangular cluster of three trees toward the edge of the fence, separating him and the pasture. For a moment, he could have sworn he saw no. There was nothing. He became nervous, but stood, but stood silent and unmoved in the night. The ticking of his watch seemed to become louder with each passing moment. He felt that the sound may soon become an all-out roar if it didn't slow its crescendo. He pulled himself together, though. He shook off the unbearable feeling of dread and chalked it up to his mind playing games, satisfied that everything appeared normal. He turned, faced forward again, and prepared to resume his walk. Everything was all right for a moment, but then he paused and let out a shuddering breath as he realized nothing was all right. He slowly turned back towards the triangle, trying as hard as he could to tell himself it had been nothing but a shadow. As he looked at the trees, it became clear that he was telling himself a half-truth. A shadow was there. No doubt about that, but it was hardly nothing but. There, at the center tree, was a figure. It had no clothing to indicate its identity. It was not young, nor was it old. In fact, it had no features at all. It was the figure of a human being, made entirely of shadow, sitting against the tree. The figure sat with its knees to its chest, arms resting atop them, and it was watching him. No eyes were present to indicate this, but the boy could tell that the figure's attention 
lay solely on him. The figure stared at him, and the boy stared right back, unable to move for a moment. It was as if he were staring into darkness itself. Clearly unnerved, he tried to shut his eyes. When he opened them, there the figure sat. Open, shut, open, shut, open, shut, open. The figure was unmoved. It just sat there, having no clear message for him and no clear intentions. It only watched. The boy grew, the boy grew more terrified with each second that ticked by. Wait, ticking. Where was the ticking? What had once been a sound that threatened to engulf the night around him and now become a deafening silence. He took his eyes off the figure and discovered that his watch had stopped. Well, sort of. He watched the second hand fight against itself in an effort to move forward, but to no avail. It was, it was almost as if this second was repeating itself. An endless loop allowing no one in or out. He had to do something. This had to stop. Surely... If he moved to the side, it would prove to be nothing more than a trick of the light, a game the moon was playing as it bounced off of something, anything. It could not be what it seemed. With his eyes carefully trained on the figure, he took one step to his left. Slowly, but as clear as anything the boy had ever seen, the figure turned its head. He jumped astride to the right. The figure's head shot in his direction. Okay, thought the boy. He closed his eyes. If I just step over this way... One step, two steps, three steps, snap, whoosh. When he opened his eyes, the boy fell to the ground in terror. The figure was still sitting in the same place, in the same position. However, the figure was no longer the only one staring at him out of the darkness. Two more figures, identical to the first, now sat against their own trees on either side of the original. They sat knees to their chests with arms resting atop, flanking the first figure as if he, he were some sort of king, some sort of leader. This couldn't be real. This couldn't be happening. Open, shut. Open, shut. Open, shut. Open, shit. They sat st- they sat staring as speechless as the boy was himself, though in them the silence seemed to come from someplace devious, someplace dark. The boy somehow found his way to his feet. He somehow found the gall to stare right back at the figures. He somehow found his voice. What do you want? The boy bellowed into the night, trying his best to hide the obvious horror in his voice. He was met with silence. Who are you? He screamed again, and yet again he was met with silence. Then the question entered his mind. Why me? He said, suddenly quiet and masking no fear in his words. At this, the figure in front straightened his shoulders ever so slightly. Upon seeing this, the boy began to plead and try everything to make them disappear. They had the wrong person. What did they want with him? If he could just find an opening to run without the crippling fear of them following him, he tried once more. Open, shut, open, shut, open, shut, open, shut, open. With a deafening tick, his watch began again. Where the figures had sat, there remained only a set of trees. Whether they had gone because of his pleas, or he had found some strange way out, or he had just gotten lucky, he didn't care. He ran as fast as he could back to his cabin. The boy raced to the back of the room, diving into his bed and laying with the covers pulled so far up that his feet stuck out from beneath them, as so many children do when they are afraid. Covers, after all, can protect from any monster. The weight on his chest was nothing more than fear. The stairs he felt as he ran were in his mind. Here he was safe. As he lay there in his bed by the window, staring up at the moon and drifting into the place between sleep and wake, he heard something. Five sounds, clear as day, outside in the darkness. One step, two steps, three steps, snap, 
whoosh. Ah. So that was Stephen Pappas. I think we said that right. We did. And I think he based that on a personal experience that he actually had where he did see some real shadow figures. So pretty creepy. Uh Oh, there's those puppy sounds again. We had uh, little kids were playing in the background. So she's got all kinds of things to bark at. We also have had a possum hanging out in our backyard. So who knows what she hears. While you were reading, everybody informed us that Heather said it's 22 degrees and snowing, so that would definitely be in Indiana. In Tennessee, it's snowing as well, according to Tammy. And then Robert Foster let us know it's snowing also in Utah. It's snowing in Utah, too? Oof. Now, we are supposed to be a little bit chilly tomorrow on Christmas Day. I think we're going to have a high of 69. So it will be chilly. Which means I can wear my new Ariel sweatshirt. Let me see what we got going on over here. Aaron is back. And we have Amanda with us. Southern Wisconsin has snow too. (laughs) And it's cold and snowy in Chicago, according to Tyra. (laughs) Yeah, well, there there are some benefits to uh, living in Florida. Well, there is snow at the Magic Kingdom. And what is the snow made of in the Magic Kingdom? Well, let's just say we call it snope. (laughs) You don't want to stick your tongue out and catch the snow at Magic Kingdom. But speaking of that, I was talking to a guest just talking of soap. And I can't remember where they said it was, but it's the town where A Christmas Story was filmed. And you can actually go in to the room where he was and put soap in your mouth if you want. And it's like the whole town is like, completely there's a museum and everything so I will have to take Miss Diane there but I am not going to put soap in my mouth (laughs) yuck it's also snowing in Michigan and Marcus says hi from Lubbock looking at looking by Lubbock right that Waylon and Willie and the boys right (laughs) (laughs) I recall that's pretty close I think isn't it Lickenbach Texas or something or Lickenbach, Texas. I'm, I'm not sure what exactly city, but I think that's what that's supposed to be. We better not sing country songs. You better just read this story. Do you want me to read it or are you going to read it? I'll read it. Okay. Spiritus Ex Machina, Spirit in the Machine by Sarah F. Gunther. Hello, Anna, and Merry Christmas to you as well. February 2003. The splendor of the age of the Iron Horse was still in living memory when the museum's roof collapsed under the weight of the President Day's snowstorm. The eastern seaboard had suffered the brunt of the blizzard, and Baltimore had suffered through the worst of that. It could be called an act of God or a force of nature. But whatever it was called, the damage to the museum and to the locomotives, trains, and historical artifact was massive. February 1946. The woman, prim and proper, and oh so respectably dressed, sat in the dining car drinking her tea as the train carried her on the long trip to Chicago. She enjoyed traveling by train. There was something, well, scenic about it that was lost when one traveled by boat or by airplane. She was still quite ambivalent about all that model of travel. Travel by train certainly made her life and her job easier. The hours and days that she spent crisscrossing the country pulled by the great iron horses gave her time to think, to plan, and to watch. 
Her observations were always keen, and her employers relied upon her ability to work out in the open without being noticed by any but the best-trained eye. She took another sip of her tea, savoring the lingering, lingering sweetness of the sugar that cut through the bitterness of the black tea. My, how delicious this tea is, she thought to herself, as she carefully towed the bag Oh, yes, carefully towed the bag sitting at her feet. No one took much stock in a woman sipping tea in the dining car of a train, especially when she looked so respectable. She preferred it that way. During the war, they would assume that she was traveling to sea or returning from seeing a husband who was at home on leave from somewhere abroad doing his service to the country. Now they would assume that she was going out to join said non-existent husband on business or simply making use of an abundance of cash or free time to go on vacation. Only her contacts knew the modicum of the truth. And when the man, who was dressed in an equally respectable suit, slid into the other side of the booth, she gave him a polite nod and a smile. You should have the tea, she said. It's surprisingly good. I'll keep that in mind, he answered, when he reached over to turn over the fresh tea bag sitting on the edge of the saucer. I'm glad, she said with certain finality, as she used her foot to slide the bag out from under her seat. When the well-dressed man left the dining car, the woman looked down at her teacup and sighed, flipping over the tea bag again. She saw the small capsule that her com compatriot had hidden beneath it. She sighed. Apparently, she was not meant to go back to Washington. The higher-ups had obviously decided that she was no longer useful to them. However, however beneficial her German ancestry and willingness to fight for the country her ancestors had immigrated to years ago had been to them during the long years of the war, there was little they needed to know for there was little there was little they needed her there was little they needed from her now. Ooh, and this is life. And with all the secrets she knew about the actions taken by the Americans and the Allies of the war, the senior agents weren't keen on keeping her alive, despite whatever confidentiality documents she had signed. There would be another team along soon enough to collect her remains, if they found her remains at all. The woman would have laughed through years of training prevented her from drawing undue attention to herself. Instead, she smiled, a plan already forming in her mind. Finishing the last of her tea, the woman stood, pocketed the capsule, and departed from the dining car, leaving the fresh tea bag behind in her wake. If this was meant to be her end, then she would make sure she lasted as long as she possibly could before fate caught up with her. February 2003 The glee that the historians felt at finding that intact tea bag would seem so insignificant if they hadn't found it amidst the rubble of the damaged museum. The fact that said tea bag was also the only surviving tea bag of the B&O Railroad, the company for which the museum was named from, and from which many of the artifacts its house within came from, with all the damage left in the wake of the roadhouse roof collapse, there was little hope that such a delicate thing could make it through. But it did, and that was nothing short of a miracle. The prim, proper, oh-so-respectable woman watched their discovery. She smiled. The B and O Railroad did not have such good tea. The B and O Railroad did did have such good tea. Satisfied, she disappeared into the cold February air. So my question is: Was she a ghost, or was this her much much older? 
because we went from two thousand and from nineteen forty six to two thousand and three. So, I don't know. I'm not sure. Diane, she was definitely a ghost because this is a ghost story. Oh, <laughs> it's not an old lady story. I want to know how a tea bag managed to survive all those years. Because. All right. So I have this really cool book that I picked up. Gothic Chilling Ghost Short Stories. We love you back, Justin. So I, I think we have time for one story out of here. And uh, this isn't as classic a story as some of them that are in here. This is an author who actually is still alive. So I don't know if you can call something a classic if the author's still alive. Vonnie Winslow Christ wrote this, and it's called The Return of Gunnar Kettleson. Do you guys like zombies? Because this isn't really a ghost story as much as it's a zombie story. But it's a scary story, which is what's fun to tell around the fire, too. And Denise is... Brains. <laughs> and Denise wants some brains. <laughs> Great. That was rude. Rude, Diane. Rude. <laughs> well, I wasn't saying you didn't have any brains. Celia sat straight-backed on an oak bench in her moonlit kitchen with the long-handled axe stretched across her lap, as one is wont to do in a moonlit kitchen. She listened for the shambling footsteps of her husband, Gunnar Kettleson, comforted in small measure by the presence of her great-aunt beside her on the bench. "'Do you think he will come?' Celia whispered as she rubbed the wooden axe handle with her thumb and wondered if there'd be maggots." We should light the welcome candle, said Rona. The white-haired woman set the butcher knife she'd been holding in her right hand on the floor, stood, propped the fire poker from her left hand against the bench, and walked to the fireplace. She withdrew a blazing splinter of wood from the fire. This night, one night, by full moon's light, we call you Gunnar Kettleson. Come home, cruel Draugr. Come home, bitter revenant, chanted Rona as she lit a solitary white candle, balanced in a silver candlestick and placed it on the window sill. The elderly woman extinguished the splinter, returned to the bench, and patted Celia's forearm before picking the butcher knife back up. We should know before long if we sealed him in the grave or if he'll return. What more could we have done? Celia's aunt answered her with a tilt of her head and a flutter of her heavily veined hands. As they sat in silence listening to the sea wind in the trees, Celia recalled their somber funeral procession that carried Gunner up the hill to the cemetery. She'd followed closely behind the casket beside Rona and Gunnar's father, Lars. The whole village had marched after them. The whole village had to attend, because Lars owned the fish factory, cannery, and most of the fishing ships where the villagers worked, and Lars retaliated against anyone he suspected of not showing sufficient respect to the Kettleson family. Lift your chin up, woman, Lars said. Lift your chin up, woman, Lars had growled as they followed the casket. Be proud you were married to a Kettleson. Then he'd grabbed her upper arm, squeezed it hard, glared at her with his cold blue eyes. And unless you're carrying his child, I'll have you out on the street within a year. And if you carry a babe, he'd scowled and added, he'll be mine at birth. You were never in love with my son, only interested in the Kettleson money. Wow, what a jerk. Celia had opened her mouth to argue, but before she could utter a word in her defense, Aunt Rona had started had stared the hulking patriarch of the Kettleson family in his pale, mean eyes and hissed, Shame on you, Lars. She's lost a husband, and he's not yet beneath the ground. 
The spirits of the dead remember such slander. Lars had pressed his thin lips together so tightly that they turned white, but he hadn't argued with Rona, for Rona was fey-blessed. The old woman was known for her rune-reading, healing herbs, and blessing spells, and Lars would naturally suspect she knew darker magics, too. Celia watched the welcome candle's flame flicker. She wondered if Gunnar saw its light from the graveyard. Poor Gunnar. Celia's eyes feel... Celia's eyes filled when she thought about her husband. His mother was dead before he was three. It was whispered in the dark corners of the village that Dalla Kettleson had been beaten to death by her husband in front of their son. Though the official story given by Lars was that Dalla had slipped on a rain-slick stone and tumbled over a cliff to the sea rocks below, and no one dared challenge Lars, lest the same fate befall them. Gunnar had grown up in a household without a mother's love, where the least infraction resulted in tongue lashings and belt beatings from Lars. She believed that's where her husband's temper had been honed. Kind to her when they first met, sweet to her while he courted her, Gunnar grew angrier after their wedding. His death at the cannery had almost been a blessing, for Celia had fully expected to die at his hand. Though he tried to control his temper, Gunnar had flown into a blind rage twice during their brief marriage. The first time he'd accused Celia of flirting after he'd seen her talking to the butcher on the street in front of his shop. In his anger, he'd flung her down the stairs. Luckily, she'd only broken her arm. The second time it occurred after Lars told his son that Celia had worn a revealing dress to the fish market. Gunnar had slammed her against the wall and then hit the wall beside her head with his fist five or six times. She'd shown him the dress she'd been wearing and he'd realized his father was manipulating him again. After both violent fits, he'd knelt before Celia crying and begged her forgiveness, and though she knew it would probably be the end of her, Celia had forgiven Gunnar. Leave him, friends had whispered, but leaving Gunnar meant leaving the village and Aunt Rona, and Celia was sure that no matter how far away she fled, there was no escaping the revenge of Lars Kettleson. Celia wiped her eyes with the back of her hand. Perhaps the saddest thing about the marriage was that Celia really did love Gunnar, and she knew that Gunnar loved her too. He was just so damaged from his childhood and every day at work. Lars poured even more ugly, nasty thoughts into his son's ears. And then there was the babe. Only she and Gunnar knew about her pregnancy, and he'd seemed so happy. Maybe a baby would have made a difference in... Listen, said Aunt Rona as she leaned forward. Someone is coming. Do you think it's him? Who else? The villagers are locked tight in their homes tonight with no candles burning. This is the first full moon since the first new moon after Gunnar's death. This is the night he can return. The fey-blessed woman, who was her great-aunt, brushed a tear from Celia's cheek with her leathery fingertips. We are alone, my dear. No one will ever look out their windows until dawn. Lars, ke- Lars keeps his candles burning. I can see the Kettleson keep. I can see the Kettleson keep lit bright as day through the window. Aunt Rona snorted. He's a fool. Always was. Perhaps Gunnar won't return, Celia bit her lip. We did everything we could to keep him beneath the ground. We placed a pair of open scissors on his chest. We hid twigs from an alder tree in his clothes. We even tied his big toes together to make it impossible for him to walk. Yes, we did what we could, her great aunt patted Celia's forearm again. Still, the undead have their ways of figuring out how to return. But he should be confused. We had nine men from the village lift and lower Gunnar's coffin three times, and each time they turned the coffin around. How can he find his way? Aunt Rona shrugged. We didn't wall up the door he exited by the last time, so he can still enter this house. The door couldn't be walled up. Gunnar's father forbade it. 
and you, my dear, were too kind-hearted to drive straight pins through his eyes, both things might have helped. Her aunt lifted her hands up, let them drop to her lap, but but a determined draugr will always find a way to rise from the grave. But I did nothing to harm him. I only loved him. Why should he hurt me? The undead returned to finish the unfinished. The undead returned for vengeance. The undead returned for their own reasons. A loose shutter slammed against the side of the house, and the broom they'd used to block the back porch clattered down the steps. Did you hear that? gasped Celia. It is Gunner, responded her aunt as she tossed a handful of salt into the air in front of them. Both women tightened their grips on their weapons as the dragging, thumping sound of footsteps on the back porch grew louder, then stopped. The door handle jiggled. Do you think he'll be death black or corpse pale? queried Celia in a quavering whisper. Is that what you would ask at this moment? Do you think he's going to be black or pale? Inquiring minds want to know. Well, oh, oh, she ran her head into the chair. Did you see her? She hit it head on. (laughs) Poor thing. I think she's chasing after a dog she hears. Hellblar or Narfor. It matters not. And I'm not sure what language that is. I'm sure I butchered it. Our actions must be the same. Tiana. Tiana, come here, baby. The two women stood and faced the draugr as the kitchen door swung open. Celia, the white-faced corpse, slurred. Celia. And as Celia had feared, there were maggots. Wads of squirming white fly children oozed from the wounds on Gunner's once handsome face where the canning machines had sliced into him. His longish blonde hair was caked with dried blood and dirt. His feet were bare and frayed. Red twine was still attached to the two big toes. I guess he could still walk with it, huh? Celia, the draugr who'd been Gunner, Celia, the draugr who'd been Gunner, said again as he lifted something in his pallid hand. Lars, gasped Celia as she saw what dangled from her late husband's left fist by its thick white hair. The moonlight bounced off Lars Kettleson's exposed teeth. It appeared that the draugr had ripped his father's head from its body. Blood dripped from the ragged bit of neck attached to the head and from the sides of its mouth. Lars' blue eyes were wide open and glassy. His face had a surprised expression on it. It would seem Lars Kettleson should have extinguished his lights, noted Rona. Though she couldn't tear her eyes away from the grisly trophy in the draugr's left hand to look at her aunt's face, the tone of the old woman's voice indicated she was happy with the way things had turned out for Lars. Slowly, Celia's gaze drifted over to what the draugr gunner clasped in his right hand. She gulped down a scream. It was a heart, not unlike the sheep heart she'd seen in the village butcher shop. But Celia knew this heart didn't belong to a sheep. The draugr nodded at them, turned around, shuffled through the kitchen door onto the porch. He paused, turned, and beckoned the women to follow him with the hand that held his father's heart. Do as he asks, urged Rona as she stepped beyond the ring of salt at their feet. Celia followed her aunt's example, though she still gripped the axe tightly. What does Gunnar want? We shall find out, answered Rona the Fay blessed We shall find out indeed. The women followed the draugr to their backyard fire pit, uh-oh, where earlier... <laughs> They'd stacked wood, soaked in oil, in readiness for the ritual to send a soul back to the realm of the dead after zombification. The draugr gunner surveyed the readied bonfire and grunted. He tossed his father's head and heart onto the wood and then knelt beside the fire pit. He turned his mangled, maggoty face up to gaze at his wife and slurred, Celia, save me. I can't, she responded, her eyes burned, her throat constricted. 
The axe in her hands felt heavy and awkward. I can't. But I can, said Rona. As she grabbed the axe handle, lifted the woodman's tool, swung it horizontally, and lopped off the draugr's head. The head bounced, then rolled to a stop three or four meters away. The draugr's body toppled over, spilling a stream of black blood and maggots at their feet. Gunner! Celia screamed, then reached for his body, but the sight of the wriggling maggots kept her from touching him. Bring a, log- bring a lit splinter from the fireplace, ordered her aunt. Celia's feet seemed frozen to the ground. Now, shouted Rona. She ran into the house, pulled a piece of kindling that burned brightly from the fireplace, and hurried back to her aunt. While she was gone, Rona had used her knife to carve out Gunner's heart. She tossed it onto the ready-to-be-lit bonfire beside Gunner's head and Lars's head and heart as Celia handed her the kindling. Gunner Kennelson rests now beneath the sod. Your wife is safe and will bear you a child. Celia gasped at the words. She told no one but Gunner of her belief that she was pregnant. Her uncannily wise aunt smiled at her, nodded, and then continued the, the chant. Your last deed was a necessary act. Depart in peace and do not look back. In a harsher tone, Rona the Fabless continued, Lars Kettleson rot beneath the grass. You showed kindness to none, and none will mourn as you pass. Go to, you, go to your new world, cursed and despised. May you suffer and burn till the stars leave the skies. Celia's aunt drew a sign in the air with her forefinger, tossed the flaming kindling out onto the well-laid, well-oiled bonfire. It flared into a roaring inferno. Help me, she instructed Celia. The women loaded Gunner's decapitated body onto a sledge and dragged it back to the cemetery. They pushed the headless corpse into its open grave. Rona withdrew a small vial of water from a nearby holy well and sprinkled it on Gunner's remains. Blessed Mother, purify this good man's flesh, let him sleep in peace till the final awakening. Celia and Rona sang as they pushed soil on top of Gunner's body. When the corpse was covered, they returned to their house. And though the sledge was easier to drag without the rate of Gunner's body, Celia's feet felt leaden as she neared the bonfire. When all that is left are embers, we'll shovel them into buckets, place the buckets on the sledge, and drag the ashes and embers to the sea, explained her aunt. There, we'll toss them into the waves. To be scrubbed and scattered, to be pounded and purified, chanted Celia. Yes, my dear, and then we'll find Lars's body, have a quick service and burial, no open coffin, no questions. Won't people want to know what happened? People will know what happened, though none will speak of it, save on icy winter nights when sea winds wails, when sea winds wail, cold trees tap at the window, and children huddle around the hearth begging for stories of ghosts and trolls and draugr. It doesn't seem fair. Gunner could have been a good man. Gunner was a good man, Rona assured her. He crawled from his grave to see to it that you and his child would be provided for, and I dare say that his spirit will hover close to you all the days of your life. Celia watched the fire consume the wood, oil, and flesh of the Kettleson men. She shook her head. I think you're overly romantic, Auntie. Perhaps, Celia, mistress of Kettleson Keep. What? You're the grieving daughter-in-law of Lars, widow of Gunner, and soon-to-be mother of Gunner's child. You'd better get used to the title. I did consider. No, but I think Gunner did, replied Rona. The fae blessed as she nodded at Gunner's ghost standing guard, even now beside his beloved Celia. So see, it was a ghost story, Denise, in the end. Yes, it was very cool, except for the zombie maggot part of it, but I did like the story. That was a good story. It wasn't all that creepy, unless, of course, you were actually experiencing it. 
course, what Daniel says is very creepy, that's a ter- Christmas Eve terror, is a crying toddler. Any kind of toddler is a nightmare. And um, it looks like Avery and Nikki are both watching as well. Hello. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Well, that was uh, our live streaming for you all. Uh, we're going to have to shut it down and get Denise off to bed because she's got to work tomorrow. There is no uh, Christmas Day off for people who work for the mouse. So she will be working at Disney tomorrow. But thank you so much for joining us in our backyard here with our ghost stories around the fire pit. We'll uh, get this recording up tomorrow so that people who weren't able to join us will be able to hear it. And uh, thank you for those of you who were here at the very beginning when we were having a few technical difficulties getting things up and rolling at YouTube, we'll definitely be doing more of these in the future. So you guys have a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Winter Solstice, Happy Festivus, Happy Saturnalia, whatever it is that you happen, Happy Kwanzaa, whatever it is that you happen to celebrate, Happy Happy. Yes, and um. Jennifer just said that that was a great story. So I just wanted to acknowledge that before we say goodnight. But um, thank you all for being here. And we will look forward to seeing you live again someday. And have a happy new year. We hope everything goes splendidly for you in 2018. Yeah, let's make this the creepiest, spookiest, bestest year ever. Cool. All right. Good night, everybody. <laughs>